The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. So we are here at the last Sunday of Advent, which means that Christmas is just around the corner. I wonder how many of you have your Christmas tree up already and presents are starting to collect near the base of the tree. We wouldn't be doing that at home because all that crinkly wrapping paper would be far too tempting for the dog and she does not understand wait till Christmas morning. But we love presents and we love when they are wrapped up and they are sitting there at the base of the tree in all their bow and their finery and you wonder what is inside. We wish we had x-ray vision so that we could take a peek and see, are we getting what we really want? But perhaps it's part of the fun, that surprise, that anticipation of what is there. Did they get me what I really want? Because I'm sure we've all had those moments, whether as the gift giver or the receiver, when that box is placed in your lap and you begin to open it and you get to that point where you can begin to see what has exactly been hidden by the paper and the excitement. Maybe you laugh, maybe you cry, you run around the room screaming with shouts of joy. They got me exactly what I wanted. And that's perhaps a bit of the emotion, that expectation and then that great release when what you wanted finally arrives that we come into in this story. For as we have begun to work through the Gospel of Luke in anticipation of the Christmas story of the arrival of Jesus, Luke has been setting the stage for us, setting the stage for Jesus' birth and the sense of expectation that was in Israel at that time. That hope, that looking, that waiting for that gift to arrive that they had been wanting for hundreds of years. Redemption, restoration, a Messiah, patiently waiting for the opportunity to unwrap this surprise gift. And so in our story, we come after Mary has been told that she will give birth to the Messiah, the first person to hear this news that the time is now. But it doesn't come without any tension. This gift is perhaps incredibly complicated. For Mary is an unmarried girl living in the first century in Palestine. She was in a truly terrible spot. This is great news, but it comes with a whole lot of problems. As an unwed girl, betrothed to be married to someone, this pregnancy does not look good. At best, she would be ostracized from the community. At worst, she would be stoned for infidelity. And so, perhaps she goes to Elizabeth, her friend, a mentor, a family member, someone who she can trust to look out for her, to just process this news. It's enough to be told that you are going to miraculously, through the gifting of the Spirit, conceive a child. It's another thing that that child is going to be the Messiah. And then it's a whole other can of worms, her social situation. So she goes to Elizabeth, perhaps to seek advice, comfort, counsel, in this absolutely crazy time. And so she arrives, 
We come into this story when Mary arrives at the house of Zechariah and she is greeted by Elizabeth. And before she can even say a word about what has just happened to her, she'd probably been planning it out in her mind the whole journey. This is how I'm going to tell Elizabeth. This is how she will understand. But before she can even get a word out, Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit, the baby in her womb who is John the Baptist, the one who is told is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. He jumps for joy. And in this way, Luke sets the stage for both John and Jesus' ministry in this section. He sets out what exactly John the Baptist is going to do in preparation, and he begins to unpack what we might expect in the pages to come from Jesus' ministry. And he does this in a very important way. He does it through women. These people that are among the lowest of the low in society. Luke elevates their voice, elevates their standing, elevates them. We must listen to what they have to say because it is important and spirit-filled and not let gender or socioeconomic status get in the way. Because what was once an exception throughout Scripture, hearing the Spirit prophesy through the voice of women, that is going to become the norm. And Luke wants us to understand that from the first chapter. And so Elizabeth speaks in this prophetic voice. She said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of our Lord should come to me? The Spirit moves her to bless Mary, but also to recognize the blessing that has come to her. The Holy Spirit helps her recognize who Jesus is and moves her to the right response of excited expectation. And she blesses Mary because she recognizes that through the Spirit, Mary has trusted God. Mary has obeyed and believed the Word of God, and therefore she is blessed. And this link between obedience and blessing is strong throughout all of Scripture. You need only go back to the beginning. And then, of course, read the whole Old Testament, and it would, of course, be clear that God promises blessings to those who obey Him and punishes those who are disobedient. And so Elizabeth understands that Mary is going to be blessed because of her obedience, because of her faith in the promise of God, her faith in the revelation of the Messiah, and her belief and her obedience. She says, yes, this is something that can happen. This is something I'm willing to take on. I am the Lord's servant, Mary says. May your word be fulfilled in me. Her obedience leads to this blessing. And so Mary responds to this affirmation. Perhaps at this point she had not even believed that she was really pregnant with the Messiah. Surely there must have been something else. Miraculous conception, this would be strange and overwhelming. But God is gracious to her and confirms through Elizabeth that this promise is true and that she is blessed because of her obedience. She is not hallucinating anything. She is not misremembering events. Perhaps this was the confirmation she needed. The moment that she says, yes, this is really going to happen. And so she's moved into song. 
And perhaps that's not something so common to us to think that when we receive good news, we would pen our own song, write something off the top of our heads, but music is an important part of society as a whole. I mean, at the bare minimum, all of us know the words to happy birthday so that we can mark that great occasion in someone's life. Whether you like the song or not, you're gonna sing it because it's important to take note of this big event. And music, it also shapes our lives, the songs we listen to. It fills our time and our space, our drives, our study habits. I mean, I'll brag a little bit, but my Spotify rap told me that I listened to 97,000 minutes of music over the late year. It constantly fills my environment. Songs that tell about our social situation, songs of protest, songs of celebration, songs that talk about relationship, of life, of death, and everything in between. We even have songs for our countries to tell people what we are about, what we value. Right in our, in our national anthem, God keep our land glorious and free. They tell stories. They're a response to a life event. Songs communicate things with emotion and poetry in a way that perhaps the simple story cannot. And this is actually quite normal in the biblical tradition. We see in Exodus 15, after the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, that dramatic exodus from Egypt, after seeing God's work his mighty hand through ten plagues, split the Red Sea, protect them from Pharaoh's army, they rejoice in song. And the story continues, too. In Numbers, we see that God brings them in the wilderness, this place that does not have a lot of water. He brings them to a well, and so Israel sings a song of water. In Deuteronomy 32, as Moses prepares to pass on the ministry to Joshua, he sings him a song of the history of the Exodus and the wandering in the wilderness, a way to sum it up. Because if you want to remember something, put it to song. I'm sure we all have songs from memory work in school, whether it's the books of the Bible, the fruit of the Spirit, something that it just, it will not get out of our heads, but we remember. We see songs of celebration. In Judges 5, the prophetess Deborah sings a song after Israel's victory over their enemies. But there's also songs of lament, songs of sorrow and weeping. In 2 Samuel 1, David writes a song after the death of Saul and Jonathan. And we actually have a whole book of lament, lamentation, five songs about the destruction of Jerusalem. So we should not be surprised when Mary launches into song at such a critical event in her life, a critical event in the history of God's people. And so she sings. And the song is called the Magnificat, which comes from the Latin to magnify. Our translation says, my soul glorifies the Lord, but others have rendered as my soul magnifies the Lord. In response to this miraculous pregnancy, she also enters into the tradition of Hannah, the mother of the, of the last judge, Samuel, whose womb was barren before she prayed for, to God and was gifted with her miraculous child. In the face of miracles, in the face of God stepping into our lives and doing something absolutely fantastic, the response is song. And so the song is divided into two parts. Allow me to read for you this song in its entirety. For then Mary says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, 
all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. So this is a song in two parts. The first part is about Mary's personal experience. She reflects on what God has done for her, that God has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. The second is about social transformation. The second half, he performs mighty deeds with his arms. He has brought down rulers, lifted up the humble. And these two parts are intimately linked. And the thread that draws through them is God's remembrance. I would invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 41. And and keep your finger there as we keep flipping back between Isaiah and the Gospel of Luke. For the idea of God's remembrance is articulated here in Isaiah 41, verse 8. God says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you to the ends of the earth from its farthest corners. I called you. I said, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. The language of remembrance is not so much that God forgets, that we as a people slip into the back of his mind and suddenly he turns to his left, oh, first Hamilton is here. I wonder when was the last time we checked in. God's remembrance is not a contrast to his forgetfulness, but it is a heightened sense of the fact that we never escape his mind. He is always mindful of us. The language of remembrance then is more about a pointed special attention that he is giving to his people at this moment of time, not forgetting the promises he has made, not forgetting how he has called them his people. It brings that special attention to the constancy of God's relationship. And Mary identifies with this remembrance. God has not forgotten her. God has not forgotten about his people in Israel. He is bringing about that Messiah. He has been mindful of all their struggles, of all the temptations that they have failed to resist, the ways that their sin has overwhelmed and overcome them, but God has not forgotten. And now he remembers, he pays special attention to Mary as the mother of the Messiah. And so she is blessed. She is blessed because God remembers and pays special attention. She is blessed because of her obedience She is blessed to have Elizabeth in her life to affirm this great gift. And she is blessed to have a role in God's plan of redemption, trusting and obeying. And we could hardly blame her if her song stopped here. There is so much good that has happened to her that it can be hard to sometimes look out beyond us when we are in such joy and excitement. But she pushes She pushes beyond her own personal experience and thinking about who Jesus will be, who this Messiah will be, she begins to expect something amazing. Total societal transformation. 
her personal praise of God, her personal praise of God's power to transform society, this anticipation, it is something that has long been looked forward. And if you turn with me to Isaiah 42, starting in verse 1, we see this anticipation of who the Messiah will be. It is something far beyond just a personal redeemer. Something more than just a personal savior. Christ's work is bigger, broader, and far more fantastic than if it was limited to just ourselves. For the prophet Isaiah writes, he says, Here is my servant who I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A, ru- a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged. He will establish justice on earth. In his teachings, the islands will put their hope. There's an expectation that the Messiah, the one whom God will put his spirit in, is going to bring justice to the nations. Three times Isaiah mentions that in this small prophecy. The expectation of the Messiah is a just society. And we need only go in a few places in the Gospel of Luke to see this thread drawn through. For in Jesus' first sermon in Luke chapter 4, he goes and he preaches. He reads from the prophet Isaiah. In verse 18, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus continues to teach this societal transformation. If you turn in your Bibles to chapter 6, in verse 20, Jesus, looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject you as evil because of the Son of Man. And we can continue because it's fun to continue flipping through Scripture in this way. Jesus tells a story in Luke chapter 16 of the rich man in Lazarus, of a man who has all kinds of wealth and lives in luxury, and of poor Lazarus covered with sores, eating scraps from the rich man's table. But when they die, it is Lazarus, the poor, the destitute, the outcast, who is sitting in heaven with Abraham. And it is the rich man who refused to share that is separated from God. The gospel, the work of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus that goes beyond personal transformation that Mary anticipates in her song, the prophet spoke long ago and that Jesus continues to articulate time and time again is a complete transformation of society. It is a gospel of good news for the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed. It is a gospel not only of open hearts, but of open hands. It is something unexpected. And it makes us ask the question then, is the gospel good news for everyone? We would say yes. But if you are listening this morning, and you could perhaps identify a bit with the rich man, holding tight to your wealth, refusing to engage in practices of justice, being more concerned for your standing in society and for you rising to the top, then this is not good news. 
This is not good news because Jesus is going to turn the social order upside down and lift up the poor and the oppressed. Meet their needs. Sit and dine with them. And continues to do so to this day. And so it calls us to account. It calls us to think about how are we engaging in the transformation of society. Which can be an absolutely daunting task. For society is massive, complicated, and few of us lack the resources or the power to have meaningful, large-scale impact. It can feel a bit hopeless. But that's why Mary's song is so important. Because her hope for societal transformation starts with her personal experience and flows out. We might look at the example of Paul in Scripture, who throughout a difficult time of ministry, a time of imprisonment and oppression and violence, relied on his personal experience with Jesus and encouraged himself through that way to bring the gospel to the nations and sustain the church. We might look to figures in history like the reformer Martin Luther, whose personal experience of God's grace and forgiveness also encouraged him during a time of oppression and opposition during the Reformation that allowed him to continue his work faithfully despite constant fear of death. And I'm trying to take this in my own life. For last month, world leaders met in Glasgow for COP26, a conference on climate change, pledging to try and halt the devastating anthropogenic climate change that is ravaging our planet. And I must say, I was massively disappointed with the outcome. Sure, it's good to have these talks, but more is needed to be done than was promised. More is needed to be done to hear from the minority voices and the people that suffer the most from climate change. And I can certainly be prone to despair looking at these reports and feeling that they just did not do what was needed to be done, thinking more about their voters and their donors than the poor and oppressed in our society. And what can I do? Sure, I get 20 minutes to preach here every Sunday morning, but does that feel like enough? And so I have to stop trying to change it all on my own. And I have to take a step back and reflect on what God has done in my life. Because if God can do something amazing and transform who I am, well, surely he can do it with society. For before I decided to even come to seminary, I did my best to run away from God, from problems, from struggles. But God is gracious and compassionate and patient with me and met me where I was and walked alongside me, making his grace and forgiveness known. And if God can do something that great with me, well, surely he can transform society greater than I ever could, because I could not transform my own life. And he's going to do it. There is no doubt about that. For Mary is brought to song because God fulfills his promises. God remembers. God pays special attention to the brokenness in our society. And he is faithful to redeem and restore it. Because 2,000 years ago, he was faithful in his promise to bring a Messiah into the world. 
So can we not expect him to be faithful again today? And one of the ways that we can remind ourselves of this faithfulness is through reflection on the sacraments. Our baptism, which we remembered last week as some of our youth came forward to profess their faith, reminds us of our personal transformation. How each one of us was washed clean in water, washed clean of our sin and restored and brought into new life with God. But then today we also come to the table. We come together to eat of this bread and drink of this cup. And this table is set for all who would believe. It is open. It is inclusive. It is welcoming. It is an example of what the Christian life looks like. There is enough for everyone. And what's more, this table reminds us that blessing comes through obedience. Societal transformation comes through obedience, but not ours. It does not fully arrive because we have the capacity to perfectly obey God, to perfectly bring justice. This kind of transformation, this kind of blessing that we receive when we come to the table is because of Christ's obedience, Christ's capacity to follow God and bring justice, and we get to partake in that blessing together today. So as we come to the table, as you walk up in the front, as you gather your elements at home, Remember your baptism. Remember what God has done for you in your life. And as we take this bread and drink this cup, do so with hopeful expectation, fantastic excitement at the way that God is at work in our society, bringing new life, restoration, redemption, and justice in ways that we never could on our own. Let us join together in prayer. God Almighty, we thank you so much for the gift of your Son. Jesus Christ, we thank you so much for your perfect obedience so that we might be blessed through you. Holy Spirit, fix in our hearts this hope, this excitement, and total transformation. That only comes through you. Amen.